studied out of the book of Judges. And it has been since the month of May, about mid-May, since we were studying from that book. And that's what we were seeking to study through during the year this year. And so maybe we'll get through it. We'll have to speed up a little bit if we're going to do that. We're only on chapter 7 and chapter 8 tonight. But I want us to continue that thought tonight. But before we actually get into the study tonight out of the book of Judges, I want you to think about something with me. Is there anyone that you have ever known who seemed to be running along, living the Christian life? They seem to have strong convictions as far as Christ is concerned. It seems as though, you know, they were, they were one of the strong ones that are a member of the church. And then all of a the sudden, they just sort of run off of the rails. You know, sort of like the train that's on the screen. I don't know, I guess that may be Thomas the Train or something like that, but, but sort of like that little guy who runs off of the track. Have you ever seen somebody who has done that? As I think back over the years, I can think of folks who, who have done that, things that they did, lives that they lived after they left the Lord and His church, you know, was so uncharacteristic of what they had been before. And thankfully, some of them have come back to the Lord. They've rededicated their lives to the Lord and made things right with God. And, and of course, they're seeking to live right. But unfortunately, some continue to persist in that lifestyle and they have gone on to their eternal reward. And we'll leave them in the hands of God because He is the one who is the judge. A lot of times when we think about someone who does that, we tend to look at them and say, how in the world could anybody who seems to be so faithful, so strong, how could they leave the Lord in the way that they have done? There are a couple of passages of Scripture that I want to call our, call our attention to tonight. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, at verse number 12, the Apostle Paul writes and says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Now, anyone includes me, and it includes you, doesn't it? We need to be careful. We may be the one who, who somewhere down the way, not knowing what life has to offer, what it holds for us, it may be that we somehow turn our back on the Lord. And I hope and I pray that that never happens. Here's another passage out of the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, at verse number 17. Peter writes and says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Again, not only does Paul make it clear that it's possible for us to, to lose our way, but... But Peter also makes it clear that we can lose the stability that we have in the Lord because we're turned away, we're carried away by some false teaching, some false doctrine. And so we need to be very, very careful, don't we? We don't want to be the one who falls down to the, to the level that, that some that we perhaps in our own life have seen somewhere along the way. Now, having said that, way back in the, book, in the month of May, we talked about Gideon. 
And Gideon, most of us, you know, it's fortunate for us that we were studying him when we stopped for the summer, basically. We, we came to our gospel meeting and all of the other events of the summer. But uh, uh, we were studying about Gideon. and Most of us remember about him. You see, he's the guy who had an army of 32,000 men. And God says, you got too many, so tell the ones who are afraid, go home. And he tells them, and a bunch of them goes home, and God said, hey, you still got too many. And so we remember how God narrowed his army down to 300 men. According to the book of <coughs> Judges, chapter 8, at verse number 10, we know there were at least 135,000 who were in the army that this 300 men were fighting against. Because 120,000 of them at that point had already been killed and there were 15,000 that remained. And so we look and we remember the story of Gideon. But I want to ask you a question. Many of you remember the old radio personality a man by the name of Paul Harvey. And you remember how he would, uh, in the afternoon, would come on and he would talk about the rest of the story. I wish I had a voice like him. The rest of the story. How many of us know the rest of the story when it comes to Gideon? How many of us know what happened not only after the battle that took place that night when they go in and they break the pitchers and, and they blow the trumpets and they, you know, shine the, the lanterns and the, uh, the Midianite army, you know, gets discombobulated and they start attacking themselves and all of the... How many of us know the rest of the story? That's what we want to talk about tonight. We want to continue with the story of Gideon. And so tonight as we look, I want us to think about how we got down again to the 300 men. Go back to the book of Judges chapter 7 at verse 2. Notice that the Bible says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You see, God had a reason for whittling the army that Gideon had down. It wasn't that, that, you know, they were just so powerful. It was to show that they were weak, but God himself was powerful. He did not want Israel taking credit for what he did. And so he had a plan in mind, and it was to be executed by Gideon and these 300 men. Look, if you will, to verse number 7. The Bible says, The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the, hand, or give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. Pay close attention to what is written here for us, to what God said to, to Gideon. With the 300 men that, that are left, I will give the Midianites into your hand. Lord, how many people is it going to take for you to defeat the Midianites? Not for us to defeat them, but for you. Now, obviously, God didn't need a single man, but God said, we'll use the 300 
and I will give the Midianites, this large army, into your hand in the hands of the three hundred men. And I will save you, and I will save Israel out of their hand by this number. Okay? And so that's how, <coughs> how we got down. I wasn't talking about how did we get down, you know, uh, about God telling them to, to lap or, you know, watching them at the water and all of those things. We got down to the 300 because God said that's all we need. That's all it, it's going to take for us to defeat this large army that is uh, oppressing you so much. Now, I want you to go on down just a little ways. After the battle takes place that night, I want you to look down in Judges chapter 7 at verse number 23. Notice what the Bible says. This is after they've gone in that night, they've broken the pitchers, the, the lamps are lit, they've blown the trumpets and all of those things. Notice what the Bible says. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. My question tonight is this, who called the tribes of Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh to help Gideon and the 300 men? The Bible doesn't tell us in verse number 23 who it was who called for the help after they have again discombobulated the entire Midianite army, the Bible doesn't say who called, it just says they were called until you get to verse 24. And notice what verse 24 says, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, <coughs> saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Bethbara." and also the Jordan. <coughs> so all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Bethbara, and also the Jordan. Now the Bible says in this passage that it was Gideon who did the calling out. Where does the Bible ever say that God told Gideon to call out Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, and Ephraim? Where is it that God said, I need their help? Where is it that God said, okay, you, you've done the major part. We need some guys to help you mop up. Go call them out. And I suggest to you tonight, there is nowhere in the Scriptures that God says that. And, and as we look at that, and we see that uh, Gideon seems to take it upon himself, we also see that that leads to some other problems that's going to take place. And that's where the rest of the story of Gideon comes in. And so having looked at that and having thought about that, what is it that we can see? What is it that we can learn? First of all, I want us to think about what happens when these folks are called out. You see, they didn't listen to what God had said, it seems. And so what happens? Well, number one, there's a rift between Gideon and his own people. The rest of Israel, or at least one tribe, 
here to begin with that we'll talk about. There's a rift that happens there. Think about the conflict that Gideon has with Ephraim that is described for us beginning in Judges chapter 8 at verse number 1. We know according to chapter 7 verse 24 that they take off after the fleeing army and they do capture two of the princes of, uh, of the Midianites, two of the generals, if you will, Oreb and Zeb, according to verse number 25. But look in your own Bible, and I hope you'll open it up and follow along with us tonight. Look at what is said beginning in chapter 8 at verse number 1. The Bible says, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely, is the way the English Standard Version translates it. They come and they confront Gideon. Gideon, why did you not call us when you started all of this? And so you see that there is a rift that seems to be opening up there. And the way the Bible describes it is that the Ephraimites, they really didn't like it at all. They accused him fiercely, the Bible says. Now Ephraim, they tended to be the one who always wanted to be at the forefront. They tended to be the ones who wanted to get the glory. And this is not the only occasion in the book of Judges in which they do that. And we're going to save a lot of what we have to say about them until a later lesson because they're going to pull much the same stunt again a little bit later in the book of Judges. But I want you to notice tonight, for the sake of this lesson, what happens when they come and they begin to accuse this man Gideon, the one that God had chosen and said, hey, 300 folks are all we need. I want you to see what happens with Gideon. You see, Gideon goes into smooth mode. Look at verse number 2. In verse number 2, this is the way that Gideon answers them. He said to them, what, I ha what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? Now, I guess we probably need to understand who Abiezer is. You see, Abiezer is a descendant of Joseph. And... Gideon is a descendant, he is of the family of Abiezer. And so what he is saying is this, hey, you folks down in the tribe of Ephraim, he said, what you accomplished? He said, it was much greater than anything that I've done. Anything that I was able to accomplish, you know, you went down and you captured two generals. Now, not counting the 120,000 he had already killed up there, you know, you captured two. And I want you to note that the Bible doesn't even say they had the army with them. It just says they captured two generals. They chase after an army, go, they, they, they try to hunt them hunt him down, but they capture the two generals, the two princes, and they behead them, they kill both of them. The Bible doesn't say that they did it. But you see what Gideon does? 
is he begins to, to put it in schmooze mode again. You know, and he said, hey, now y- y'all, y'all did a whole lot more than what I was able to accomplish. There are some commentators, when they, when they read this, they'll, they'll refer to a passage out of the book of Proverbs that talks about a smooth answer. Chapter 15 at verse number 1. There the wise man wrote and says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And they'll point to, to Gideon here and they'll say, You know, he used good judgment. He gave him a soft answer and he settled things down and, and everything was just fine. I'm not so sure that's the case. Because as you continue reading on and you understand what happens not just here but even later, I think Gideon has started down a slippery slope. You see, he he begins to to do some compromising here in at least uh, one way. I, I seem to think that this particular incident, he probably should have just told them the truth. You see, sometimes it's not good to smooth things over. Sometimes the plain old truth fits much better. What are the facts that we've already established tonight? God did not want Israel thinking they won the battle on their own. You see, that's what he told Gideon back up there in chapter 7 earlier in that that chapter. God didn't want them thinking that. They had too many. And Gideon plays right into that, that scenario. What you've done is much greater than what I've done, and what he seems to forget is that it's not what Gideon has done or what Ephraim has done, it's what God has done. He leads them down the wrong road. Why did Gideon need to justify himself and the actions that he had taken with the Ephraimites? Because it was God himself who picked Gideon out and said, I want you to be the one who delivers the the, the people. I want you to be the one who, who handles this situation. And I'm going to do that, as we notice tonight, with you and the 300 men who are with you. That's what we're going to do. You see, even if, if uh, Gideon had called for them, even, you know, if the message had gotten out when they first set out to do this, God would have told them, go home, because we've already got, enough, we've already got too many folks here. Now, go home. But Gideon seems to play right into their their mindset that they've got to be right up here at the forefront getting some credit. And you know what? Later on in the history of Israel, that doesn't do them any good. It doesn't turn out well for them later on in the book of Judges. But Gideon just sort of plays the politician. He sort of makes it smooth for them He appeases the situation and just rolls right along. And so they get satisfied at that point, but God doesn't get 
the glory. Now, he does say that God had delivered these two generals by into their hand. He does give God credit there now, when he's talking to them in verse number 2. But he still hasn't accounted for all of the great good, the great power that God had exhibited in the very acts of what he had done with the 300. And so we've got a, a rift that seems to open up there. But it doesn't stop there. Continuing on in the book of Judges, chapter number 8, if you look at verse number 4, going down through verse number 9, you're going to find that, that Gideon with his 300 men, they keep on the trail of the Midianites. They're, they're continuing to do what God had sent them to do. The Bible says there in verse number 4, And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand? And we, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. What is Gideon again doing? He starts asking for help again, doesn't he? This time it's just in the form of we need some food. But he asked the men of Succoth and Penuel about some food. My men are tired, they're hungry, we need something to eat, would you give it? And of course, both of them turned him down. One of them said, hey, you know, have you already taken these men? Thinking that, hey, they may turn around and they may win and they will come against us and they'll, they'll persecute us even worse than what we've already been persecuted. Have you already... Been, uh, have you already conquered them? And of course he has to say, no, I haven't actually got you know, them in my custody yet. He did understand that God had given them into his hand, but he asked these folks for help. Who should he have been asking for help? You say, well, they were the ones who had the food. They were the ones who could, have, who could have supplied it. Now, wait a minute. What had God already done? When he sent 300 men into a, a camp of 135,000, can you say, miracle? Miraculous? Gideon didn't turn to the one who had already been supplying his help. 
He turned to somebody else. Now basically he says to the men of the first city, because you won't help me, when I come back, I'm going to give you a whipping. I'm going to take you to the briar patch and I'm going to, break, I'm going to whip you with briars. And so he goes and he wins the battle and he comes back and if you continue reading there, you're going to find that on the way back they catch a young man. And they say, write down the names of your leaders. And they write down about 70 names and they go back in to Succoth and they catch those 70 men. And you know what he does? He takes them to the briar patch. The Bible says he teaches them a lesson. He shouldn't have had that conflict. But even worse than that, he goes to the town of Penuel. He tears down their tower and he kills the leaders of that city, the men of that city. Those were his brethren. Those were his own people. Obviously, you know, they were scared. Their faith was weak. They didn't know all necessarily that Gideon had been through. But God had already said what? I will save Israel. I'll deliver these men into your hand and the men, the 300 men. Again, the rift that is opened up between Gideon and his own people. First, he's like a politician with Ephraim, and now he becomes like a dictator. And I think that tells us something about the progression, perhaps, of this man, Gideon. Do you remember when God first came to him and said, I want you to be the one who delivers Israel? Do you remember what Gideon said? Well, we're the smallest tribe, smallest family, and I'm the smallest one in my family. Who am I? We see, it seems, some humility that he has there. At least it's presented to us in that way. But now he becomes the politician. A little bit later on, he becomes, you know, more like a dictator. He's making some progression, and it's not a good progression in this case. Well, not only do we have the rift with his own people, but if I go in the right direction, we'll have the retribution that he exacts against his enemies. Found in chapter 8, verses 18 through 21. Again, if you have your Bible, go down there. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered him, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Now let's stop right there for a moment. He wants to know about what happened to them. That's, that's basically, ask the question, it's the way it's translated in the English Standard Version, well, where are they? He's basically asking, what did you do to them? And he said, they said, well, you know, they were acting like you. They look like the sons of a king. Now I want you to remember at this point, Israel 
doesn't have a king. We don't know what happened to these men. We don't know if they were in battle, they were killed. It's more likely that for some reason they had been captured and they were killed. What we do know is these two kings, they recognize these men. They know what happens. They know what Gideon is asking about. And so they remember the situation. And so for some reason they have, we're going to find out, been executed by these men. But what comes into play next helps to explain some other things. Notice what the Bible continues on there. Notice what he says in verse number 19. He said, that's Gideon said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Now the implication is, I'm going to. I'm going to execute you. I'm going to put you to death. Verse 20 says, So he, that's Gideon, said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. He's passing on that attitude, I guess you might say, now to his own children. You rise and you kill them. You take it upon your... You step up like I stepped up. You be a part of now of a strong family. In the Oriental world, that was a, uh, should have been a proud thing for him to do, but the Bible says the reason he didn't do it, he's still a young man, he's still a boy. He doesn't want to, to do that yet. Okay? Verse 21, Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. He took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. He put them to death. You see, they, they seem to provoke him even more, and he falls for it. But why, why is he putting these guys to death? You killed my brothers. You killed my brothers. It seems that they had captured Zeba and Zalmunna on the other side of the Jordan, the Bible says. And very likely they have marched them back. Remember, he presents them to both the towns of Succoth and Penuel. And now he carries them all the way back home. Likely back home because there he finds his young son that he tells to rise up and kill them. Back all the way to Ophrah, where he was from. There's one verse, though, that you might want to consider, and that's in verse number 9. Remember what is said when uh, what Gideon says to the people of Penuel? He said, uh, when I return in peace. 
When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. The battle was over. The prisoners had been captured. And he himself puts them on trial and decides they need to die, not because they've oppressed Israel, because you've killed my brothers. He begins to exact retribution against his enemies. Under the Old Testament law, it was right, it was okay, it was authorized, I guess you might say, by God for the blood kinsman to execute someone who kills a family as long as that person was not in one of the uh, six cities of refuge. Okay? But these are outsiders. These are men. He didn't kill them in battle. He killed them in spite. Son, you, get, you do it. It'll make a man out of you. Seems there's some progression that continues on. But look at the next thing. Look at his request. In verses... Uh, beginning at the next verse, uh, verse number 22, notice what the men of Israel say to Gideon. They ask him, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you've saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon answers them and said, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. You know, as I look at that, it sounds like Gideon (coughs) is saying the right thing. God was the king over Israel, wasn't he? He makes that clear. Later on, when, uh, uh, when the people are calling for a king, and Samuel is, you know, down and out because they're doing that, God tells Samuel, they didn't reject you, they rejected me. I was the king. They rejected me. Gideon says, I'm not going to rule over you. And my son's not going to rule over you. I'm not going to be the king. We're not not playing it that way. It at least sounds like he's saying the right thing. But, notice what happens next. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request. Oh, you know, one more thing, he said. I'm, I'm not going to be the king, but, 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 you know, here's one thing. Let me request something from you. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. They had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we'll willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. Now let's stop right there for a minute. What does Gideon do? Oh, I don't want to be the king, but I do want to collect the tax. I do want you to pay me. I do want you to reimburse me 
Let's take this, uh, let's take this gold that you guys have on your ears. 1,700 shekels of gold. That's just the earrings, the Bible says, not counting all the other stuff that the camels were wearing and the things that the kings possessed. He said, let's take that. 1,700 shekels, about 42 and a half pounds of gold. I looked it up on Friday, just the earrings. If we were to translate that into today's value of gold, $789,000 worth of gold. He said, let me have that. Now you throw in all of the other things, and we're looking at probably Gideon being a millionaire. Oh, I'm the least of my tribe. I'm, I'm the least of my family. Gideon has made a progression here. But we're not finished. Gideon, what did you do with all that gold that you get? And Gideon made an ephod, verse 27, of it, and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. An ephod is a garment that the priest wore. But it's also used in other passages in the Scriptures. Not for a garment, but for an idol. Gideon took the gold and made some kind of image and set it up in his own city, perhaps for his own recognition. And the people began to worship it. They hoard after it, the Bible says. How could anybody who had seen what Gideon had seen by the hand of God, do that. And the Bible says it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. You see, he took his family with him. But you know what? There's another thing too. The Bible says about Gideon if you look there in the, in the passage, that Gideon, that he had many wives and a concubine. And he had 70 sons by all of these wives and that concubine. You know, he sort of outdid even David with that one, who would later be king. Seventy sons. Judges 8 verse 31 says, And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he named his name Abimelech. Now why is that interesting to us? The word, the name Abimelech, 
comes from a compound word, abi, A-B-I, meaning the son of. Melech, the king. The son of the king. Why would you name a kid the son of the king? And if you continue reading in chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, about this Abimelech, the Bible says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, Jerubbabel again, Gideon, another name for him, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that just one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relative spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. The king's son says, I want to be your ruler. And they let him. That is a far cry from a man hiding in a wine press, isn't it? That's the rest of the story of Gideon. One great lesson to remember about Gideon is that he, like all of the other Old Testament worthies, are not perfect. They're not perfect. He is listed in Faith's Hall of Fame in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and 33. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and he goes on and continues on with another with a list there. Gideon is found there in Faith's Hall of Fame, but he's said to be faithful because he subdued the kingdom. He did what God had set him out to do, and he did that by faith, at least at the beginning part of it. But here's what you need to remember. Not everything he did was done by faith or showed him to be faithful. He took a downward path. You know, as those who do act by faith, we need to be sure that the things we do are consistent with faithfulness. We don't want to run down the road that Gideon seemed to have traveled. We don't want anything that we do to become a snare to our family, do we? We don't want to lead them in the wrong direction. And we have to remember that just as we looked at some verses at the very beginning, that though we're strong, we can go astray. Even God's heroes did that. But you know what we're thankful for? We're thankful for the fact that when we do, God has made a way back. He's made it possible for us to have a way back to Him. And that's the wonderful 
wonderful lesson that we learn from the Word of God. Gideon will stand before God and be judged by him. I don't know everything else that happened in the life of Gideon. I do know the Bible says it became a snare, and I do know it's possible to escape a snare. And when grown children sometimes go astray, even parents, they can't turn back time and change things that they sometimes would like to change, as in the case of Abimelech and so forth. And so Gideon will stand before God. He saw fit, God saw fit to list him in, the, in faith's hall of fame and say, you know, here was a good guy. Did some things by faith. But we need to learn from him. We can't turn a blind eye. Even this man of faith. He did things that were not of faith and did not show him to be faithful. What about us tonight? What if somebody read our life story? And they looked at us a thousand years from now and they said, oh, here was a strong Christian man or woman, but... Would they say that? Could they say that? good thing about it is we can change it tonight. That's the path we're on. We can change that path. And we need to. If you're not a Christian tonight, come to the Lord. Baptize for the remission of your sins. Seek to live that faithful life. Maybe you've done that, but you've started down the wrong path. You feel your life going off the track. You remember Thomas the Train? You feel your own life going off the track. Put the engine back on the track. If you need to do that tonight, why don't you do it right now? As together we stand and sing. Wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the Nothing but the blood.